This podcast is a presentation of Faith Assembly of God, where our mission is to connect people with Christ and to experience life. Get more information online at faithishere.org to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 11 a.m. Thank you for making this podcast a part of your week. been on this incredible journey following the evangelist Mark as he tells us about the life of Jesus. The main theme and thrust of Mark is that Jesus Christ is the servant. He came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And, and really for these last 11 chapters, we have kind of been on a whirlwind tour that starts with him being baptized, the launching of his mission under John the Baptist. And it seems to go very fast, very quickly, one miracle after another, one teaching after another, about 18 miracles, four different teachings. And we are flying through the life of Christ. But he gets down to chapter 11 and the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And he'll take the last six chapters over one third of the gospel and deal with one week in the life of Christ. Because that's predominantly what Christ's mission was was to come and give his life for us. So we have entered the Passion Week of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now Mark, who had been going immediately and straightway and very rapid in his language and his teaching and speech, now he kind of slows everything down to a grinding halt, and he's going to give us every detail of that last week of the life of Christ. And he will take us through the Passion, and he'll take us to the empty tomb, and it'll take us all the way through. And it's an incredible, incredible gospel. We are winding down. Next week is my last week in this series. I, I, I want to talk about a very, uh, an incredible story about extravagant love. And you need to be here uh, next Sunday morning as well. But this is, is just a very, very powerful teaching. And it's kind of like in this teaching, uh, Jesus nails the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. And he really, he really hits them. And so let's stand together for the reading of God's word this morning. Uh, be Mark chapter 12 and verse number 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He set a hedge around it and he dug a place for the wine vat and he built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent his servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another servant, and at him they threw stones, and they wounded him in the head. They sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and they killed him. Many others beating some, killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. Those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come and let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others? Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, 
They feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Father, today, as we open up your word, I just I need your help this morning. I need you to open up our ears, understanding. Pray, God, you'll speak this message deep to where we live. Thank you, God, that you taught this parable not just for them, but for us also today. And so it may come alive again anew this morning. We ask it in your mighty name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. In comparison to the peaceful, uh, I, I, ideal settings of the earlier parables, the pastoral settings, the very uh, nurturing, wonderful uh, parables that he had told in the past, now he tells a parable, but it's violent. It's bloody. It, it kind of shocks your senses. And he, he hits the Pharisees right between the eyes with the impact and power of this story he tells them. Very graphic in its detail. Very powerful in its presentation. And, and when you think about what Jesus Christ came to do, God sent Jesus Christ to this earth to reveal what God is like. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like, then you need to come to know the incarnate God come in the flesh, dwelling among us. That's what the Christmas story is all about. It's, it's God revealing himself to mankind. It's the word taking on flesh. It's God dwelling among us. So that as we come to know Jesus and his life and his character, we know what God is like. And so Jesus Christ is that final revelation of who God is. And yet when Jesus Christ comes and he goes into Jerusalem and he makes this triumphal entry at the very climax of his coming to man, at the same time, they're plotting to kill him. They want to kill God's ultimate messenger. They want, they want to kill the very incarnation of God himself. They want to kill him and they're plotting to kill him. And so, so Jesus says, let me tell you a little story. Let me tell you a parable. I know exactly what's going on. I know exactly what's happening right now. And there's, there's a point of this parable, and I want you to get this. Listen to me. The point of the parable is this. If you receive God's blessings but reject his son, you will face God's judgment. And let me say that one more time. If you receive God's blessings but reject his son, you will receive God's judgment. And so he sets and builds up this whole parable to get this message across. And so I'm going to share three pictures of, of God with you that, that we see in the owner of the vineyard and, uh, and how he works and how he deals with us and how he keeps striving with man. And, and it's, really, it's really about God. So first of all, let's look at God's goodness in verse number one. He says, and he planted a vineyard. He set a hedge about it. He dug a place for the wine vat. He built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers, and then he went away into a far countries. Now, now you have this kind of plays out like a movie or a drama or a play. And so, let me quickly give you the cast of characters, so there's no misunderstanding here today. First of all, the owner of the vineyard is none other than God. God's the one. He is he is the owner of the vineyard. And it's his vineyard and everything God made and created on this earth, the whole universe, it all belongs to God. He is the owner. The vineyard in this parable represents the household of Israel. 
It is Israel. He planted his vineyard. Uh, he planted up that nation right in the middle of this world to be a witness and a light. Uh, and he put the hedge about it. He took care of it. He made the wine vat. He did all it needed. The vineyard is the house of Israel. The tenants are the rulers of Israel. That's the Sanhedrin. That would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ruling leaders. They are the tenants. They're the keepers of the vineyard. They're to keep the vision alive. Uh, the servants that he sends are none other than the prophets. Those are the ones coming and warning the people. And so the servants coming to collect their rent from the tenants. They are the prophets. And the son and heir, the son of the vineyard is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the son of the owner. And so it's very clear who he is talking about. And last of all, they will send my son. Now, now this, this story that he tells, while maybe a little bit foreign to us in our way of thinking, was a very common picture in the nation of Israel. There were often those absentee landowners who owned property, owned land, and they would give the land to be taken care of by the tenants. And the tenants would, would raise the crops raise all their, their, their food, and then what happened in exchange for raising their crops, they were tenant farmers. When the owner would come and the crops were there, they were required to give back a portion of that to the owner because they were taking care of his land. He had a right to share in their profits. This was very common in Israel. We have tenant farmers today across America. Someone else owns the land. Someone else does the work, raises the crops, and then the owner gets his share of the now, the system of the absentee landlord only works when the owner and tenant trust each other implicitly. If the trust is not there, then the system breaks down. And that's exactly what you have on behalf of the tenants. The whole system breaks down because the trust is not there. The owner has to trust that the tenant will produce his crops and ultimately share in the profits. The tenant, on the other hand, trusts the owner to give him full responsibility to do his work, to tend the ground, uh, to do what he has been asked to do by the owner to make sure that the ground brings forth good crops, good fruit. And so this is the story you have. Now you say, why does it refer to Israel? Go back to Isaiah chapter 5. You see the, a very similar analogy of, of God talking about the vineyard, and he talks about the nation of Israel. And once again, you get the sense of all that God has done for Israel through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 5 and verse number 1. Now, he says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his, what's the word there? Vineyard. Okay, so you can tie that together with Mark's gospel. My well-beloved has a vineyard. On a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out his stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And so right here, once again, you see the goodness of the landowner, the goodness of the one who has the property. He says, I've done everything needed for you to survive. I built a tower, put the fence up, built a vat, gave you good soil, good fertile land. Everything you need to be fruitful has been done. 
They would put a fence around their vineyard. They have the vineyard here. They would often build a fence around it of stone or rock, and that was used to keep the wild animals out from coming and pillaging the grapes and taking the produce away. And then they would build the wine vat, and the wine vat was literally in two layers, and they would have a hole in the rock, and they would stand and crush down the wine, the grapes, and the juice would flow down to the bottom level. They would extract the wine or the juice out of that. They built a tower. They would put a tower right in the center of the vineyard, and and, and somebody would go up and be the watchman over the rest of the vineyard to make sure no animals came in or no one come to pillage or destroy their vines. Everything was needed. God says, I've put everything in place for Israel. I have taken care of them. Psalm 73 verse 1 says, truly God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel. And so God has given Israel a wall. He gave them the law. And he gave them the word of God. And he gave them the Ten Commandments and all the commandments they would follow and live by. This became the fence. This became their protection. This became their guide and rule for life. Uh, He sent the prophets. They were on top of the watchtower. They were watching out for the nation of Israel to make sure that they would not be taken away by thieves and robbers and destroyed. Uh, And the Lord says, I've planted my vineyard. I've planted my nation in the middle of the land. uh, And I've cultivated it. And I've given them everything they need to succeed. Now, what was true for the nation of Israel is true for the church today. God has been very, very good to us. God has blessed us more than we ever deserved. He has placed us in a wonderful world, uh, in a wonderful creation. He's given us blessings and benefits. Uh, He's given us everything we need for our survival, for the clothes we have today, uh, for the food we eat every day, for the air we breathe. Uh, I want to tell you, God's been good. Walk out and look at the sunshine today. And you've got to remark again, God has been good to me. God has blessed me. God has given me everything I need to survive and make it and be blessed. He's given us everything the Word of God says that pertains to life and godliness. Not only has He given us everything we need to live physically, He's given us everything to live spiritually. And his word that guide us and give us strength in his own son. And then God gave us the greatest gift of all. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. He has given us everything we need for eternal life. And he sent his own son to make it possible. God has been very, very good to us. And the Word of God teaches us and tells us that His goodness leads to repentance. I want to ask you, in light of all that God has done for us, have we repented? Have we been thankful? Have we given ourselves back to God? It's like in... Paul tells the Romans all that God has done for them and about his mercy and his grace and his justification. And then he says, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies back to God, a living sacrifice. Have we done that? God's been so good. God's been so good, so incredible. Are we thankful? Go back to Isaiah chapter 5, continuing that analogy of Israel. He says in verse number 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Why do you behave like you do? Why do you act like you do? Why do you go out and, be, and treat other people the way you do? I, I've given you all you need. How can you respond in, in that way? God's goodness, the owner of the vineyard. Second, I want you to notice also God's witness. Look at God's witness. It was typical, the contract between the landowner and the tenants. Often in that day and age, it would, the, tenant, the landowner may stay away for as much as five years to give that tenant plenty of time to grow up the crops, to get that crop coming in. Wouldn't do anything the first few years, but after five years, he would send those, uh, the time for accounting would come. He would send his servants back in to collect on their behalf. Now, there's two, uh, two witnesses here God talks about. One is the servants. God is so patient with Israel he comes back looking for spiritual fruits. And, uh, and in this case, every servant that he sends back looking for his fruit, looking for his prophets, he sends the prophets to call Israel back into a place of accountability. In other words, Israel's bringing forth wild grapes, and he says one prophet after another, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And the list of prophets goes on and on, all the way up to the very last prophet, who is John the Baptist. And he says, one prophet after another, asking Israel to repent. It is time to bring forth spiritual fruit. God's been good to you. Repent and turn back to God. And yet, Jesus draws this very dark picture in the parable of a continual escalating violence as they deal with the servants of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at the servants. And this is more historical accounting of these heroes of faith. And he gets down to the end and he just kind of sums up how they treated these heroes of faith. And you get to Hebrews 11 in verse number 36. Still others had trials of mocking and scourgings uh, and yet of change and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. That's what you've done to my servants. You've beat them and you have killed them and you have abused them. There's a terrible inconsistency that I think we all have to deal with before we look back historically and say, my, they were way out of line. Listen, don't we all do that to some extent? There's this inconsistency in our human heart uh, that God is good and God loves us and God gives everything we need to make it and survive, and yet we respond with disobedience, we respond with apathy, we respond with selfishness. We respond in all kinds of other ways uh, that betray the goodness of God. God has given us certain freedoms. And the tenants were allowed to farm the land as they pleased. But we're never to forget who owns the land. Now here's the problem. The, the landowner has gone away. He's given them five years to get their, their crops up, their, their grapes up and all that. But during those five years because the landlord's been gone because the owner's been gone they begin to think the vineyard's theirs this is my vineyard i've worked 
I planted it in the ground. I get the grapes. I've done, I've, I've fertilized the soil. I've, I've kept the animals away. I've done all the work. And, and the problem is we begin to think we're the owner. We forget who the real owner is. Can, can you imagine Adam and Eve walking in the garden? And God creates Adam. He creates Eve. He puts him in this great garden. They, they walk around in the cool of the day. And he says, Adam, you take care. You name the animals. You take care of the garden. You raise your food. You do what you need to. It's, it's all yours. It's really mine, but it's yours to take care of. And one day, Adam picks up some carrots. And he pulls the carrots out of the ground. And he's walking with his carrot. And God comes along beside of him. And it's the cool of the day. And God says, you know what? I like one of those carrots. Can you imagine Adam saying, no way, God. I did this work. It's my carrot. I planted the seeds. I watered it every day. I worked with the sweat of my brow. It's, it's my carrot. Now, now, we in our minds think that, you know what, God, would, Adam would never do that. But what did he do? There was a tree that God said, don't touch. Have everything you want. All around, there's just one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that fruit. Everything else you can have, but I'm still the owner. And I, I put my tree in the middle of the garden to show you that I own the entire garden of Eden. It all belongs to me. Now, what am I saying? Listen to me, church. Everything we have belongs to God. Remember a few weeks ago, I preached on the Lord hath need of it. And we've got to understand who owns the donkey and who owns our car and who owns our house and who owns our children and who owns my life and who owns my money. And God owns it all. Now, in this environment, in this setting... I'm getting allotted like this. And you're all nodding your head. And you're saying, yes, God's the owner, and I realize that. And we're all going, yes, I'm, I'm right on with you. But when the offering bag was passed, when the offering bag went by, we said, you know, I can't give this week because I might not have enough to get me through. I can't tithe. 10% because I worked hard for my money and I got Christmas coming up and I've got my kids to think about and I've got SCE and G to think about and I got my mortgage payment due and I, I got my car payment due and you know what I'm sorry God I'll have to take a pass on the ties this week and the next week and the next week and you know what happens you have basically taken the ownership of the vineyard. Oh, man. I just lost. Woo! You have just assumed ownership of the vineyard. We say it all belongs to God. And God says, okay, prove it. Give me back 10%. We say, God, I can't do that. God comes, he wants his fruits. One tree in the garden, one, one tree, one tree. Take 
do what you want to. You know, you, you, can, you can buy your food, buy your groceries, put the gas in your car, pay for your house, pay your taxes, buy your gifts, do whatever. One tree, don't touch it. And the day you touch it, it becomes a curse to you. And so we keep eating the fruit, fruit of that one tree. And when we do that, we are saying the whole vineyard belongs to me. Really not yours at all, God. Okay. You know, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 19. God describes how man has, how God has been good and good and good and good. And yet how man returns it with evil and evil and evil. And in Romans 1 and verse 19, he says, Because that they may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Uh, uh, For since the creation of the world, verse 20, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, having been understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, I've given you my creation. I've given you my blessings. You've got a beautiful land to live in. God created it all. He made it all. He gave it all to us. But instead of receiving his divine witness, he goes on to say, look at this. Verse number 21, because though they knew God, they glorified him not as God. They they know naturally that God exists, that God made it all, that it all belongs to God. But what happens is they glorify him not as God. They don't treat him like God. They begin to take over ownership of the vineyard. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things and dollar bills. I don't know if you saw that in there or not, but it was there. You see, instead of worshiping and loving and serving God, we have turned over to the worship of ourselves and our money and our stuff and our vineyard. Over and over again, God sends his witnesses and he sends his prophets and he gives us his word. And, and, and we, we have this revelation of who God is and, and God is so patient, uh, but still mankind rejects him and tries to assume ownership of his own vineyard. And you've got to ask yourself, why is God so patient? If I'd have been God, man, atomic explosion, world gone, they don't love me, they're not worshiping, they're partying, they're doing their own thing, they're not serving me, bam, I'd be gone. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some can count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not one that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't understand why God keeps being patient with us, why God keeps loving us. And that leads us right to the next voice of God. It's his son. Finally, at last, I'll send my son to the vineyard, my very own begotten son. 
And now Jesus shifts from past history, talking about the prophets and the way Israel treated their prophets. And now he brings the story right up to date, right in your face. The sun is right here, right now. So he goes from the past into the present, and he sends his son with full authority to collect what belongs to God. And God's motives are still the same. He still hopes that somehow along the way, the tenants, he says, they will respect my son. Somehow they will honor my son, uh, and I can renew my contract with them. Uh, In fact, my son will make a new covenant with them, and we'll start all over again. Uh, We'll forget about the prophets. We'll forget about your ownership. We'll forget about all you've done. And if you'll just receive my son, uh, I'll make that new covenant with you. I'll make a new agreement, and we'll renew our lease agreements over the vineyard one more time, but God's son doesn't have a chance. And these greedy tenants, they want the inheritance for themselves. Uh, They want to own all the land, uh, and they know that if the owner dies not having a son, those tenants automatically will take over the property and over the land. Uh, And so the story goes, they kill the son, so one day the vineyard will be totally ours. I want to make just a couple observations right here about sending the son. Jot these down. Number one, Jesus Christ in this parable is asserting his deity or his sonship. He is saying very clearly, I'm the son. I'm the one. And by saying I'm the son, I am a class above all the other prophets. I am above all the other servants all those that have come along all the way through history, I am over and above all of them. Let me remind you one more time, Jesus Christ was just not another good man. He was not a prophet in a long chain of prophets. He is absolutely the eternal Son of God. And that distinction is very clear in this parable. And as the son, because he is the son, he is the heir of all things. Uh, But I've got good news for you. Hebrews 1 and 12 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now, here's the good news. When you accept Jesus Christ into your heart and life, you become a, a joint heir with God. You share in the inheritance. That is phenomenal. And so the whole enchilada, the whole vineyard is yours. And you receive your inheritance. Now, you say, why did did he do that? Why did they do that? They said, let's kill the son. And so you see this, this kind of mob violence take over in the vineyard and they arrest him and they will take the son outside the city gates. Uh, They will nail him to a cross. Uh, They'll put his hands upon there. They'll drive the nails in his hands. Uh, They'll put him in his feet. Uh, They'll press a crown of thorns on his head. Uh, They'll march him around like a criminal. They will make him carry his own cross uh, and they will smash him to death. And a murder takes place in God's very own vineyard. Notice the escalating violence here. As you read it, and Matthew brings it out very clearly too, the same stories in Matthew. The escalating violence. It says the first servant, the Bible says, they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The the, the second servant, the Bible says, they threw stones at him and wounded him in the head, and they sent him away shamefully treated. 
The third one that says they killed and the son, the Bible says, they killed and cast him out of the vineyard. Now notice in every story, the violence in the vineyard is escalating. And that's kind of the way sin and evil are. It's kind of an inclined inclined plane that's a steady downward spiral. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And and you want to look at the owners, you're reading the stories, you want to say, don't send your son. Right? He's drawn you into the story. And now you see the, the vineyard from the vantage point of the owner. And so you are saying, owner, are you stupid? What are you doing? Haven't you learned? Why do you think they're going to change for your son? They've killed this guy, this guy, this guy. They've wounded these guys. They've beat these guys. They've treated them shamefully. And you want to say, please, owner, stop. Don't send your son. But what does the owner do? As the violence escalates, the love escalates. And he sends his only begotten son. And we want to say, why? Because he loves you. He keeps reaching out and reaching out. And finally, he sends his very only begotten son. My, what absolutely incredible love. Where sin doth abound. Grace doth much more abound. He keeps loving. He keeps reaching out. He keeps caring. Second observation is this. He says, and last, and at last, they will send the son. What he is saying is, I am God's final revelation to man. There will be no other. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am God's ultimate appeal of love. I am God's ultimate love reaching out. It says in verse 6, and they sent him last. By last, he is absolutely the highest and strongest and all-sufficient God. He is above all others. By being last, he is eternal and he is permanent. He is the same forever and ever and ever. Uh, uh, There is no more new power in this world, uh, but through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there is no more sacrifice for sin. Uh, It has been offered up once and for all through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has made his last appeal through Jesus Christ. What will you do with the Son? What will you do with the son? There's an old spiritual that we sang years ago. And it goes, were you there when they crucified my Lord? How many have ever heard that? The truth is, yes, we were there. Now, here's the shocking news. We were right in the middle of the vineyard with all the tenants. We were there. We were there. It was my sins, my wickedness, my selfishness, my evil. It was my sins that killed Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, I was emphatically right in the middle of that vineyard with all those other wicked tenants. We all had a part in his pain. We all had a part in his suffering. We were all in the vineyard. 
And when the men saw Jesus Christ, they saw their own failures, and they saw their own sins, and they saw their own problems, and instead of receiving him, they stamped him out and crushed him and killed him. Listen, we are living in a world, we are living in a vineyard today stained with blood. John 16, 9, there's a, there's a verse, and I just want to give it to you real quick. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. And, and, uh, and we, we ask ourselves, what is the greatest sin that, that man could be convicted of? You might think rape. When a man takes a lady against her will and violates her and abuses her and robs her of her, in some cases, virginity, we might think that could be the, maybe the worst heinous sin there is. Or, or you might think murder. I, 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 I am amazed as I open up the newspaper and I see a father goes off and he shoots his wife and shoots his kids. And, and you just can't believe how something like that could happen. And, and we may think in our mind of catalogs of sins, murder, the absolute taking of someone else's life, maybe that might be the worst sin. Or we look at our children, innocent and helpless. And we, you might think child molestation and predators are out there and those who will kidnap and go and abuse a child and you think man that's that's got to be the worst sin of all and we can look through our list of sins and we can think how bad they are but i stop the verse goes on to say he will convict the world of sin because they believe not on me the greatest sin is rejecting jesus christ he will convict the world of sin because they believed not on me. God can forgive murder. He can forgive rape. He can forgive abuse. But the one sin he can never ever forgive is when you reject Jesus Christ. Greatest sin. We saw God's love, God's ownership, saw God's witnesses. Third, I want you to see also God's judgment. Look, if you would, at verse number nine. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, Jesus Christ starts with the past in his story and the prophets. He moves to the present. I'm right here. The sun is here. And now he moves to the future. He says, what will the owner do? He will come, he will destroy the vineyard, and he will cast them out and give it to somebody else. He will return in judgment. Turn back to Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah chapter 5 again. Let's continue in our story in Isaiah's reading 5 and 6. And now please let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, uh, that they no rain, no rain on it. And so in that same analogy, he talks about the judgment that is going to fall on the house of Israel. Now notice he makes a statement here. What will I do? I will take the vineyard and I'll give it away to others. Prophetically, what does he mean by that? It simply means this, because the Jews did not receive 
the gift of the vineyard and the gift of the son, he will then go to the Gentiles. And you can read it also in Romans 9, 10, and 11 when he talks about God and the natural branches rejecting. And because they rejected the son, they are cut off. And so God comes and he grasps the Gentiles in. And you will see after this that uh, Peter will go to Cornelius' house and they'll go to Samaria and they'll go uh, to other Ephesus and they'll go throughout the Roman Empire and pretty soon the gospel begins to go out to all the Gentiles. Now, listen, I want to tell you, this should fill us with two thoughts. It should fill us with joy and also fear. It should fill us with joy because the gospel has come to every single creature on the face of the earth. And the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles and because of that, I can be saved today. It should also fill us with fear. Because if I treat the vineyard the same way Israel did, I will receive the very same judgment as the nation of Israel. We are now the stewards of God's purposes. Now I am the vineyard keeper. Now I am the steward of the vineyard. Now I'm the tenant. Now I've got to take care of God's stuff. And so the question is, are we faithful in our trust? Are we returning fruit Back to God. And this all ties in also to the sermon last week about that, about that tree that was supposed to bear fruit. The standard of accountability has not changed. His blessing or judgment depends upon on my stewardship of the vineyard. Okay, everybody understand that. The only way to keep God's gifts then is to use them for his glory. Turn to Romans chapter 11. I referred to it. Let's just look at it real quick. Romans 11. Stay with me here. I'm about done. I'm in a few minutes. Romans 11, verse 20. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Talking about their branches. But you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Now, the warning goes back to the Gentiles, the Romans. But you be careful, don't be haughty, but also fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. Now, say that with me. Goodness and severity of God. On those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise, you will be cut off. Now, these two things have got to be held up together. There is the goodness of God and there is the severity of God, right? He just said it in Romans. You can't accept the fact that God is good and not accept the fact that God is also holy and a God of judgment. You see, this is where we get confused. We want to talk about heaven, and when everybody dies, they're going to heaven, and it doesn't care. We don't care what kind of life they live, what they did. Somehow, every loved aunt and uncle is going to get to heaven. And every funeral service, we talk about, oh, they're probably up there right now. We'll join them one day. And we, we love to talk about heaven and the goodness of God, but no one ever mentions the judgment and severity of God. If we reject the goodness of God's Son, he says in Romans 11, there will come a time when we must face his judgment. Jesus goes on to another story. And I want you to look at it. Look, go, back to, go back to Mark. 
He closes with another analogy. Same analogy as the vineyard said in a different way. Now he's going to use a building analogy. And he says, goes on, have you not read the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now I want you to turn to Matthew. Turn to Matthew 21. Matthew tells the same story, but he he adds some words that Jesus spoke that Mark leaves out. Matthew chapter 21. You don't have this. I just found this this morning. Matthew 21 and verse 43. It won't be on your screen. Let's start with 42. Did you never read, he tells the parable of the landowner, did you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in their eyes. This is a quotation from one of the Psalms. I think Psalm 118. Verse 42, 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of us, uh, of it. And so what he's saying is because you rejected God, it's going to go to the Gentiles. But look at verse 44. But whoever the falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls will be ground into powder. Now there's a word picture here that, that, was, that, that you, was used. It gets a very vivid picture. What happened is what, if the Romans, for example, were building an arch, they would take and there would be a stone that would be the chief stone in the arch and all that held all the other stones together it made the arch stand up and look good and and allow people to walk under romans they had arches all over the roman empire and they would find that one key stone that one corner stone and they would take that and size it up and get that ready to put in the top because was the is that arch is going together you've got to have that stone ready to be put in place and so they would examine all the stones that would find the right one that would just fit just perfect. But he goes on and say, the stone that builders rejected, if there was that one stone they did not like, didn't think it would fit, didn't think it would work, they'd set it off to the side. But say they came along and after looking, getting that arch completed and finished up, they looked around at all the stones. You know what? This stone we rejected earlier, this is absolutely the best stone. Let's put this one up there. And so what they would do is the Romans who would build the arch, when they put the cornerstone, that that chief stone up there that held all the other stones together, they would make the Roman soldiers stand underneath that arch. And if it fell, it would crush the soldiers and kill them. And so he was telling his architects, his builders, his workers, you better get the right stone up there. If you don't, it will fall on you and will crush you. Thus, the analogy on whom the stone falls on will be crushed and ground into powder. And so you have that analogy, and Jesus Christ is talking about his coming judgment. And what he is saying is, I am the one in history who holds all things together. I hold everything together from the palm of my hand. I am the chief cornerstone. I hold the universe together. I hold you together. Everything you need in my life, I hold it together. I am the main cornerstone. I am the keystone. I am the one that everything else in this world revolves around. And yet if you reject that stone, if you kill the sun, it will crush you one day. The vineyard owners, he makes a statement. He says, I'm going to send my son because if I send my son, they will reverence my son. The owner 
makes that statement. They will reverence my son. Now, in the vineyard, they did not reverence the son. But Jesus Christ makes a statement. He says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And ultimately, in killing the son, ultimately, in hanging him on the cross, it made a way for all peoples to reverence the son. And when he walked out of that grave uh, on the third day and he carried our sins out of the tomb with him, uh, it made a way for us to reverence the son. And I will tell you, one day, there is coming a day, if you don't reverence him now, the Bible said there is a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. They will, they will, they will reverence my son. My son, they will, they will, you will, you will reverence my son. Everybody here today will, will absolutely reverence my son. Now, you can choose to do that now. You can receive the son. You can open your heart to the son. You can say, God, it's all yours. My life is yours. The vineyard's yours. Everything I have is yours. I give my life back to you. I, I want to follow you. Or you can reject the son. You can say, I don't want the son. I don't need the son. If you receive the son, you will experience his goodness. If you reject the son, you will experience his severity. God has done all he can do. He has sent his last witness. There are no more coming down the pike. There's no other ways to salvation. Buddha, Muhammad, they weren't witnesses. They're not in that chain. They're not in that list somewhere. There are no other witnesses. This is my son. This is my last and final witness. And now he says, it's your move. What will you do? This podcast has been a presentation of Faith Assembly where our mission is to connect people with Christ and to experience life. Thank you for listening this week.